Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am, and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR, that's uh, www.3cr.org.au website, and Freedom of Species podcast website, that's www.freedomofspecies.org. And all previous podcasts are available via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. My name's Adam Cardellini, and this week on Freedom of Species, we're joined by Sally Hunter, a human rights activist, a refugee advocate, and an animal activist. Sally dedicates a lot of her time and energy to end the oppression of animals, um, whether they be human or other animals. Sally has developed many close relationships with people seeking asylum, both in and out of detention in Australia, and she's been involved in direct action campaigns working for asylum seekers' rights, including the disruption of Australian Parliament um, calling for our government to close the camps, which currently imprisons thousands of asylum seekers in Australia. Sally is also a passionate vegan and fights for animal, animal liberation and has been involved in organising events such as Today I Am Voiceless. Today, Sally will discuss her experience working in the social justice and animal liberation movements and explain what they can learn from one another. So thanks again. You're listening to Freedom Species on 855am. And Sally, thanks for joining us today. Um, thanks for having me on the show, Adam. It's great to have you. Um, and we've got Sally on um, via phone. So would you just be able to tell us, Sally, a little bit more about yourself and what you do for humans and other animals? Sure. Um, so I first became an activist when I was about 13. I attended a, a rally against Pauline Hanson. And that was the beginning of a long, like, you know, um, amount of time spent on the streets, marching, attending events and rallies and that sort of thing. And over the last couple of years, um, I've become increasingly uh, frustrated with um, what's happening in our country and across the world in terms of um, the oppression of animals and humans. And so I've started to become more involved in direct action. So previously I was doing things like fundraisers and, and rallies and stuff like that. And in the last couple of years, I've been getting trained to do direct action and civil disobedience and still also organising um, Today I'm Voiceless and, and other small kind of events. But my main focus at the moment is direct action. And can you, can you tell us a little bit um, more about what, what is direct action? When you say direct, direct action, for people out there who might not understand that term, what does that mean? 
Okay, so there's many different faces of direct action, but the direct action that I'm involved in is is um, going directly to companies, to government offices, and um, obstructing their business as usual. So um, it could be something like a sit-in in an office, or it could be sitting out the front of a building and, and stopping people from um, opening that building that day. So it's got many faces, but currently in the refugee rights movement, um, some examples of direct action that I've been involved in is shutting down Border Force, um, which we've done twice. So we um, go into the office and and stop people from entering and leaving that building so that um, they send a really strong message to them that, that you know we oppose their policies and practices. So that's just one example of direct action in that movement. Yeah, great. And I mean, direct action is certainly um, being used in, I know, environmental movement for a very long time. And as you say, in social justice movements, I mean, a lot of the abolition or um, uh, the equal rights sort of movement in America in the 60s was things like sit-ins, direct actions on places that might not have served um, African-American people. Um, And this is sort of a form of that going into uh, places that do business that is that is not really very good and that we want to fight against. Um, so Border Force is certainly certainly a good target for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. D- and I think recently there's also been some direct action uh, in the animal... I, I haven't seen as much direct action in the animal movement, but there is stuff like people going into restaurants and, um, and calling out, um, sort of chanting the or bringing awareness to people consuming animals in those restaurants um, and making people aware that they are consuming other individuals. And and recently in Victoria, there's been, or in the last year, a couple of actions where people go to the gates of abattoirs and uh, stop trucks going into abattoirs for a short amount of time. But um, that, that could also sort of be seen as direct action in the animal rights movement, do you, do you think? Definitely, and that's something I wanted to speak to today is um, in one of the questions coming up about direct action and, and how that can play a role in the animal rights movement. There's definitely space for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think I think there's plenty of space for developing that sort of thing in the animal rights movement. And I think we can learn, and hopefully this is what our conversation will be about, yeah. is what we can learn from um, from social justice movements which have been around for a long time and have a lot of um, a lot of knowledge within them. Uh, so before we get into that sort of stuff, though, I just wanted to ask, um, what is it that drives you to dedicate so much of your effort into fighting for justice for others? And can and you, you mentioned that this began when you were 13. Um, do you, was it, was there a particular event that made you go to a, a campaign against Pauline Hanson, was it, that you said? Yeah, this is my parents. But I think that sense of justice, like, I think I was just born with it. I had a strong sense of justice as a small child. And there's a number of funny stories about me, you know, um, standing up for something when I was five and six, you know, the family dinner table. Um, But I think I was just kind of born like this. But, um, you know, I think increasingly I see that we live in a system of inequality and it's driven by greed and capitalism. And I see that, you know, everywhere at every turn you know people are being oppressed and animals are being oppressed and it's there's no need for that you know and I I think I just increasingly feel um that there's something that we can do about it and you know so often I think people say oh the problems are too big we can't possibly change this world but that's just not true like if if we dedicate a small amount of time to um activism 
then, you know, it makes a really big difference. So I think it's just, for me, it's a burning fire that, you know, I just, I can't sit still when there's so much oppression and inequality happening in the world. And when there is something that you can do, we are powerful when we, you know, when we stand up and, and unite, we are really, really powerful. So that, that's what drives me. And I see change. I see change happening. It might not be, it might not be big change, but I see small changes happening. And I think that's, that keeps you going. I, I think you fighting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's important to um, recognise those changes. And can you can you provide some examples of where you have stood up as an individual or as a group fighting for justice, and you have seen some change? Yeah, I mean, in the um, currently, I'm doing a lot of work in the refugee rights movement, so that's kind of where most of my examples are going to come from. But yep. um, you know, we had someone who was supposed to be deported a few months ago, and um, he he was supposed to be deported on a Wednesday and we um, blockaded at the front of the detention centre and they moved him to Sydney thinking that they would be able to get away from us. But we phoned activists in Sydney and they blockaded the detention centre for one month and, and that man is currently still in Australia. You know, so that's that's something that we see that that made a difference. Yeah, fantastic. Um, you know, also in the refugee rights movement, the Let Them Stay campaign, where, you know, they said that we, we want people who are in community detention in Australia to be able to remain here and not be sent back offshore, and those people are still currently onshore. So, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't achieved the full outcome of what we would like, but that's a small win that, you know, these people are still here. So there's still a lot of things that need to be done, but, um, yeah, we definitely see those things as wins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, any any um, animal activist or a vegan will know that it takes a very long time to to um, to see any change. And although you might get some people saying, "Well, that's just one person that wasn't ex- um, wasn't deported," um, it it sends a big message to the government, yeah. and it's one person um, that leads on to possibly hundreds, if not thousands, not being deported. It's, it's a, strong, a strong message saying that this is not something as a community that we will accept. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's a powerful... Um, being active is a powerful uh, political statement. Yeah, exactly right. It, it, it is. It's a strong stance to say that we don't accept this and that if you do this, we will be here. And it doesn't matter where, whether you go into state, you take that person into state, we will be there too. So... Um, yeah, it's very powerful, and I think like that's that's why I put a lot of energy into that, growing that movement, and growing growing um, the amount of people who are you know skilled up and, and ready to do that kind of activism. It's a very specific type of activism, direct action, and civil disobedience is very specific because you know there's a lot of people who are unable to do it because they don't have permanent residency or for whatever maybe they have you know barriers to that, other barriers to that. So it's really important, I think, that we use our privilege for for the things that other people aren't able to do. Yeah, absolutely. And even even those people who um, who might have the capacity to do direct action, there's also been a dampening within our society mm-hmm. um, on those sorts of actions that seem seen as radical or unacceptable. And there's a lot of a lot of fear that people come to um, possibly undertaking direct action because they feel like they will be um, possibly persecuted under the law. Um, or they'll have some sort of um, social disadvantage from future jobs and things like that, which from my understanding and um, people I know who have done lots of direct action isn't actually the case. Have you, have you found any um, negative consequences from the direct action that you've done? 
Um, I've been arrested twice and I'm, I'm appearing in um, court in Canberra and in Melbourne. Um, I haven't obviously had those court appearances yet, so I'm not sure what the outcome is, but I'm not concerned because I think that, you know, it, it's, it's my moral duty to um, disobey unjust laws. So, you know, I'm very much um, more committed to our world being better than I am to some minor consequence to myself. So um, I think they probably just get a fine. That's generally what people get for these sorts of things. So I, I'm personally not concerned, um, but I can see how other people may be concerned about jobs and things like that. And I guess that's why people have to make you know, decisions, informed decisions before they you know, participate. But um, I've never heard of anyone in Australia anyway having any serious consequences from direct action. Yeah, that's, and I think that, that's a really important point to make. And I think something that you, um, that you just said, which is standing up against unjust laws, is mm. such an important point to take away. Um, we do direct action to stand against uh, laws that are wrong. And it'd be like someone saying, oh, you have to, you have to eat meat or something, and you just wouldn't. If, if it was against the law to eat meat or to eat, consume the flesh of other animals. Um, as a vegan, I definitely wouldn't do that. I'd break the law every single day. Um, and you are, you are, you're seeing many laws, including those that detain other individuals um, unjustly, as, as wrong, and you're standing mm. up against those. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll just go for a break. Uh, we're going to listen to a song by... Combat Wombat called Asylum from their recently uh, released album Just Across the Borders. Um, but after that, we'll be back uh, speaking with Sally once again. Here's Combat Wombat Asylum. The 3CR annual radiothon is here and in 2017, 3CR is Radio for Change. From June 5th to the 18th, we are asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 0394198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radio for Change. And that song was Asylum by Combat Wombat and from the album Just Across the Border. Um, you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. So, Sally, welcome back. Um, you Thanks, clearly do a lot of work for, um, for refugees and human social justice issue. Um, 
and you've done work for animals. Uh, what do you see? Do you see any connections between these two movements? And if you do, what, what are those connections? I think that um, all oppression is interconnected. Um, I very much have an intersectional approach um, to activism. And I think there's many examples, but um, I'll use one, for example, with the environment movement. Um, if we think about the fact that, um, you know, companies and corporations and the government are destroying the environment, um, that's clearly, you know, part of the environment movement is to protect that. That's also a vegan issue because if our environment is destroyed and that destroys hab habitats for animals, and resources for people and animals. And so therefore, you know, there's very much a link between the two movements. And I think that's something that um, we could get better at doing is working together um, with other movements um, on, on those types of issues. For example, in Tulangi at the moment, the central highland of Victoria, the lead beater possum is critically endangered. And there's a lot of environmental activists out there um, working to protect that habitat and to try to save the lead beater possum. And that's definitely something that um, the vegan movement could get involved in. Um, very, very linked there. And I think that that's something that, yeah, we should probably look at in the direction of the vegan movement is how we can work, you know, with other social movements on not just single issues. I mean, oppression in general. It's all connected. It, we're living in a system um, of capitalism that, that, you know, feeds off oppression. So... Um, that's just one small example of, of how there's an interconnection and where, where things intersect with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that connection between, say, veganism or animal justice and animal liberation and the environment is something that we've spoken on Freedom of Species about uh, quite a lot. And it's so deep because the mm. destruction of environments is through the, the use of animals. So it's not only that the yeah. destruction of the environment affects animals it's also because of our use of animals that so much of the the destruction of the environment around the world actually occurs and then that that also has an impact on um on people all around the world so mm. through things like um, changing climate change and that having disproportionately affecting people um, who have less money or are in um, less stable environments um, to local people being exploited through the use or the um, dispossession of their lands for the use of, say, farming in Brazil yeah. or something like that. So I, I absolutely agree. There is there is so much so much connection between these justice movements. Um, do you do you have any specific examples f between animals and and human rights sort of issues that you can think of? Um, I mean, one that comes to mind often for me is, um, you know, when we look at how milk is obtained, um, you know, um, cows are forcibly artificially inseminated, which is basically rape. And I think that, you know, when we look at the way that, you know, women, two out of three women in Australia um, experience sexual assault mm. um, in their life, I think there's an attitudinal problem there. You know, we need attitudinal change about about women. And I think that, like when we look at the females as a species, because that's what I'm thinking of, not as humans or animals, females yeah. as a species. Like, um, you know, it's there's definitely a lot of oppression that has occurred um, to women, and there's also a lot of oppression that has occurred to um, cows yeah. or milk. So I think that, you know, there's an attitude there that it's okay to do that sort of thing to, to females. And I think 
um, that's I know that's something that's been used a lot in vegan campaigning, and I think it's something that people feel very uncomfortable about because it's confrontational to imagine that. And I think that's that is confrontational because there's a connection with us. You know, we we feel that connection of pain and suffering as women. Um, so I think that that that's that's something that you know needs to be. Um, change from an attitude perspective in terms of the hierarchy of you know male and and females. Yeah, so that that domination um, that crosses species barriers. It's not a domination that's restricted solely to to say other animals. It's it's a male domination over the female identity. I suppose yeah. is what you're saying. And absolutely, it's it's a, it's abhorrent, isn't it? And it's something that, like you said, um, lots of people. Uh, find quite confronting and people who are may not be vegan or animal activists um, get indignant about the the comparison between mm. um, female humans being raped and female cows being raped uh, even though when you break down the break down what is happening the forcible um, yeah forcible rape of, of another individual is occurring in both instances um, Absolutely, that that's a very good comparison that I hadn't hadn't thought about just now, but is one that's um, very prominent in the in our both our movements. In, mm. Yeah, absolutely. And when we when we say that, like you know, that it's different because they're animals, and we're accepting oppression. We're saying it's oppression is okay. You mm. know, when we say that there's a difference between a cow and and me uh, being raped, then we're accepting oppression. We're saying it's okay to oppress. Yeah, you know, we're saying that that. That that life doesn't matter. That female life is feeling pain, who's suffering in that moment. We say that we're saying that doesn't matter, yeah. and and it does. And and that's that's something that I think you know I'm really passionate about in terms of the connection between animal rights and human rights. You know, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, and there's a proposed um, Universal Declaration on Animal Welfare, which is problematic in the sense that it's a welfare stance yeah. from you know my perspective, but. Um, you know, there's, there's also a declaration of animal rights that hasn't been adopted by the UN. But um, so I think that, you know, in terms of a framework from how we can look at, you know, the vegan movement, I would call it the animal rights movement rather yep. than vegan. Because yep. I think vegan, you know, lends itself more to this idea of what you eat as opposed to philosophy of, of veganism. So, um, mm, yeah, you know, there I think, is that mistaken, mistaken sort of belief around that term, isn't there? Yeah. Well, especially since it's, I mean, it's great in the sense that it's now more mainstream, you know, people know what vegan is now, but I think a lot of people um, don't really know the philosophy behind veganism, that it's not just about what you eat, it's about what you wear, it's about what you do, it's it's about everything that you do. Um, So, yeah, I think that in terms of um, looking at this from a a rights perspective, you know, something like a declaration of animal rights is really, really useful um, to, to be able to highlight those similarities between, you know, animal oppression and human oppression, you know, yeah. to highlight the fact that we are all sentient beings and therefore we should all have the right to feel safe and the right to be free and the right to be um, protected and yeah. looked after and not hurt, you know. So I think for me, um, when I think about um, animal rights, I think about it in the terms of human rights. I think about the fact that they should obviously have, this, have different rights, but a lot of the same rights as well. And um, I think something like a declaration of animal rights would be really useful as a tool to work from within this movement. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds sounds 
like a very good thing to to look into or focus on um as you said a, a de- declaration of animal welfare does did you say that exists there's a proposed there's a proposal. Um, mm. yeah there's a proposal um but certainly problematic yeah well it, it covers things such as like standards for farm animals so it's mm. not it's not um it's not a vegan approach um it's it's a welfareist approach to protecting them from more harm than what somebody has determined they should be able to withstand, which is obviously really problematic. But um, there is a, a declaration of animal rights um, that has been drafted. Um, it's, it's available in like 12 languages. It's, um, it's on a website. Um, if you just type in declaration of animal rights into Google, it'll come up. Um, and it's a really good tool to use in terms of comparing um, the rights of animals to, to human rights. Mm, fantastic. There's some homework for everyone listening. Um, check out the Declaration for Animal Rights. That could be something that the um, animal rights movement gets behind or the vegan movement gets behind for sure. Mm, um, definitely. I think, I think you also made a, a good point there when you were saying that um, if we accept that we can't compare, say, the rape of a, a female human with the rape of a female cow, that is a form of oppression because we're ignoring the injustice against those female cows. That that is exactly a form of speciesism. That is yeah. something that that is we're only having that reaction because they are not human, and that's I suppose what we need to fight against. So the so yeah, shying away from the correct terminology, even though it is emotive, um, I think is a mistake, and that we should try and use that that um, that language because it's powerful for a reason. The word yeah. rape is powerful because it's wrong and we and the large majority of people in the world agree that it's wrong and we should be able to use that for animals as well, I think. Definitely. It's disturbing to think that it's, it's it, that people think it's okay to rape a cow for milk. Mm. You know, that's, that's a very disturbing notion when you really think about that, that people, once they, they find out that that's what's happening, they accept that, you know. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's... It's a different conversation, but it also, and we won't go into it, <laughs> but it's yeah. also when car- comparisons of um, Holocaust or um, slavery get taught, get brought up. Um, mm. there's, they're conversations that sort of, I feel, live in that same space. But that's um, for another time, I think. Um, yes. And I just wanted to ask, as, as, animal activ- as an animal activist, I've had um, an experience that I'm sure that you've had and many of our listeners have probably had in the, f- in the past where you're having a conversation about animal advocacy, you're trying to um, explain why it's important that we respect and um, respect the rights of other animals. And they, the person's like, yeah, yeah, that, that all makes sense. You know, it's bad that we do this to animals. But shouldn't we focus on humans first? Shouldn't we um, deal with our own backyard rather than trying to um, change something that's so far away from being changed? You know, there's people that are starving in the world. There's slavery. There's more slaves in the world now than there ever has been um, previously. You know, why why should I bother with animals when there's so many humans that are suffering? What what is your response to? Have you have you come across that um, that sort of response? And what would you say to that? Yeah, I haven't actually had that one, but I know other people have had that one. Okay. Um, yeah. But I guess if it, if someone was to say that to me, um, I would say exactly what I said before: is that you know, um, no one should be oppressed. Um, you know, as far as I as far as I can see, there's no reason why anyone should be oppressed. 
So I don't believe in pitting things against each other. I mean, it happens all the time in, in the public you know, discourse around refugee rights. People say, well, we should be looking after homeless people first. Mm. And I just can't even understand how we could say that one life is more value, valuable than another. It's like, no, we should be looking after all life. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what we're here on this planet to do, to preserve life. You know, yeah. we can create life. We are life givers. Um, I don't believe that we should be taking life away from anyone or harming life. So, yeah, as far as I, the way that I see it is that no one should be oppressed. And it's not a matter of we do this first and then we'll do that and then we'll do this. No, we'll just do what it takes wherever we can, whenever we can. And everyone has different capacities. And sometimes you put your energy into, you know, one movement more than another at different points in time. Like at the moment for me, for example, I'm putting a lot of effort into in the refugee rights movement and I'm also learning a lot of really important skills that I'm going to be able to transfer to the animal rights movement in terms of organising and campaigning and direct action. So, you know, all of these things are interconnected in, in like, various ways. Um, so there's no reason why we can't work towards um, ending oppression for all people and all animals at the same time. Yep. Yep, I, I would absolutely agree. It's basically do the right thing and we can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> we can do two <laughs> things at once or, or many things at once and maybe it's just that we're doing one thing which is fighting against oppression and fighting yes. for justice rather than compartmentalising things. And like you say, you sometimes need to focus energies in one space but that doesn't mean that you just let everything else slide and you don't, you don't um, then think it's right to help both homeless people, refugees and animals and everyone else that needs help. Um, and often, often it's almost that response that I've come across almost feels like a, um, it feels like a denial of, oh, well, we should focus on humans and stop focusing on animals or we should focus on homeless people and not bother focusing mm. on refugees. It's not, yeah. it's not as simple as what the person's putting forward. It's, it's almost an excuse to not um, think about the other issues going on. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point that you raised before. I mean, this is a the way that I see it. It's a systemic oppression. Mm. It's not it's not some random oppression happening here and happening there. It's systemic oppression, and it's so interconnected. And I think movements have become really separate, and um, that's quite problematic um, in terms of like being able to work towards the end of, you know, many different types of oppression. If we're seeing them all as individual um, entities, then we're not really able to see the connections between them and able to work across both. And I think mm. that's something that, you know, we're going to talk about coming up is, you know, how we can work together better because, you know, it's all connected. It's systemic, you know. Yeah. 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 And, and I think one thing that you keep on mentioning, which I think is really nice and which I try to do as well is that it's not about humans or animals it's about these people who are being oppressed and we care mm. for people or we care for um, these individuals that are being oppressed and that's what's important they're all they're all equal and we should be mm. fighting against oppression yeah 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 so we don't we don't other we don't do this othering thing where we put put um, individuals in boxes and say, oh, well, you're this box, you're, you've got a tail and fur, so you fit over there and we don't care about you and you don't have a home, so you fit over in that box and we don't think about you. Um, but yeah, that othering has always been something that happens in human society and is, it seems to, to lead to um, very bad 
outcomes for mm. for lots of people. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. So having been an activist in both social justice and animal movements, um, you've mentioned that you do direct action at the moment or doing plenty of direct action in the social justice movement and you've done um, you've or- done organisation for animal animal movement sort of stuff. Um, what do you find that each of these movements do well? Do, are they are they the same? How do they differ, and what do they do well? How do they um, how do they function, and what can they learn from each other? I suppose. Mm, I mean, I think at different times, you know, movements do well, don't do well. Sometimes, you know, these can be very reactive spaces. So, mm. you know, often there's a lot of ideas flowing, and then of, of sort of you know proactive or preventative things that we could do actions. Etc., and then something happens and, and we have to react, you know. So, I know like the refugee rights movement is a very reactive movement often because there's so much going on mm-hmm. all the time. And I know also in the animal rights movement, you know, can be quite reactive as well. Um, so, I think, yeah, at different times, um, different movements do things better than others. Um, I think the vegan movement has become much better at um, being more public and more mainstream and, and has softened a little bit and more is more palatable to people, not just in the sense of eating, but also in the sense of <laughs> processing, <laughs> processing, um, you know, the, I guess the ideas around um, animal rights. Yep. Um, and I think one thing that the animal rights movement can learn from other movements, particularly the environment movement, um, and I guess the refugee rights movement is starting to move more into direct action. Is, is focusing on corporations because I think often, you know, as activists, we focus on the public. Mm-hmm. Like we've got to get the public to see this. We've got to get the public to understand this. But I think if we look at where the information is coming from that the public are believing in terms of, you know, particularly um, eating meat and, and eggs and dairy, you know, we've got to look behind the scenes as to why people think that they need to eat that kind of stuff. Because I have a lot of people say to me, yeah, you know, I could become vegan, but. Um, you know, you need to eat red meat. It's like, well, no, you don't. Where are you getting that from? And I did a bit of research. Um, my sister's a naturopath and she was also informing me of stuff. And I had a look on the Dietitian Association of Australia's website. Um, and that's where dietitians, you know, go to get their information about what people should be eating. And, yep. and there's a lot of publications and there's a lot of, like, resources and information that dietitians in Australia use. And their corporate partners are Egg Nutrition um, Council and the Meat and Meat and Livestock Australia. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if you look on the website, it, it, it says that um, Meat and Livestock Australia fund nutrition research and de- develop um, practical resources for Dietitian Association of Australia. Yep. So that's an area that I don't know of anyone who's really looking into where is information coming from and who can we who can we target? I would be targeting Dietitian Association of Australia and their links to Egg Nutrition Council and Meat and Livestock Australia because mm. they're basically getting sponsored to produce um, research to then inform dietitians what people should be eating and then the dietitians are going and telling the public you need to eat red meat because this study said blah, 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 blah. You need to eat eggs because blah, 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 blah. So there's some very problematic links there that I think um, need to be explored. And I think that's something that the animal rights movement could get better at is um, looking at where information is coming from and 
and targeting corporations more rather than just focusing on educating the public. Like, I think that's really important too. But I think we also have to get to the source of, of where information comes from in order to change minds. Yeah, absolutely. And it, like I, I work at a um, university and I have um, friends and, and people I know who go through different courses and I hear lots of different stories about how and what I'm starting to realise how universities um, reinforce this use and oppression of animals through their um, just everyday practice and training. And someone who's gone through a nutrition course uh, at a university I won't mention, but they said that they'd have each week a different um, a, a corporate body come in and say, this is why you need to eat me- eat eggs, this is why you need to eat meat, this is why dairy is important, this is why chocolate's important. And these students who are coming through a three or four year course getting this reinforced all the time, of course that's what they're going to believe. If their yeah. professor, their doctor, uh, their, their lecturer is telling them all of these things, unless they're... Um, they're brave enough to stand up against that, then they're just going to think these things. And I think what you're, what you're talking about is we're all working for systems change, really. We're all working to change some large, complex um, thing that's, that's or, yeah, constructed within our society. And what environmental and social justice movements I find um, focus on or can focus on is um, top-down change. So going to a corporation, changing that, and then that trickles down um, to the people in public. Whereas the vegan or animal rights movement is very good at engaging with individuals and thinking that mm. we'll get systems change from the ground up. Um, and I think I think there's probably a little bit of in between because there's there's also critiques of the environmental movement where, say from from the animal rights movement, a lot of environmentalists don't take animal agriculture seriously mm. because they need to do personal change. They need to have personal reflection, and won't make that change. They'd rather just say, "Nah, it's the fossil fuel industry. We'll take down the fossil fuel industry, and everything's great." Um, so I think the, there's something in between that we need to do individual and and this um systems like this larger sort of top-down stuff as well and i think you're right that we could learn a lot from the environmental and and social justice movements because they do it very well they they know how to think about strategy and about targeting um targeting corporations and what the message is and how to go about that and it does have really good it can have really good outcomes. Can you talk about, um, were you involved at all or do you know about the, uh, I think it was the security firm that was helping with um, Manus Island and the yeah, actions against security. that? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, the Whistleblowers Activists and Citizens Alliance um, ran a campaign, um, it's an ongoing campaign, um, against Wilson Security who um, had procurements for running the security um, side of Manus Island um, and I think Nairo as well and they um, targeted their car parks so did blockades at the front of their car parks um, and these, these, are, these are car parks in Australia uh, mostly yes. in Melbourne thousands of kilometres away from Manus Island and yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. and I mean Wilson Security have a lot of um, contracts mm. um, with lots and lots and lots of um, companies and government departments um, and so, you know, Wacker decided to hit them where it hurts, and that's the hip pocket. So they blockaded car parks um, randomly across Melbourne. And, you know, 
Wilson Security withdrew. Um, well, they didn't withdraw. They um, didn't sign on again for the next contract. So effectively, they will no longer be on Manus and Nauru. Um, I think it's the end of this year. Um, um, so, and that's that's something that you know, hitting them where their where their profits are is is that's what they listen to. That's what corporations listen to. Yep. They're not really interested in in what people do in terms of whether they eat meat or not. They're interested in whether that affects their profit. You know, so if we look at where we can hit profit, the profit margin of corporations that are, um, you know, spreading propaganda about eating meat or eating dairy or eating eggs, then, you know, that's, that's what they listen to. And I know there's a number of companies across the world that are dairy companies that have, have realised that there's a big decline in the amount of people drinking milk and they've actually turned to producing um, soy milk or nut milks and, and completely abandoned the dairy side of their business. So, mm. um, And that, that's an example of that. I mean, that hasn't come from activism necessarily. It's come from them like watching what's been happening out there in the world. Um, but that's what companies do. Companies are interested in profit. So if they think that, you know, it's, they're better off, you know, producing a nut milk instead of um, cow's milk, then they will do that because they're not committed to producing cow's milk. They're committed, committed to profit. Mm. I think, so I th- I th- we need to look yeah. more at that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you just explained there was um, sort of a, a consumer-driven approach, which I think the v- vegan movement does very well, or the animal right, well, vegan movement actually does well. We like to promote vegan things and what's good, but the other the other side of that is to do the direct action approach, which is to hinder their profits um, in the negative. So where they're doing something wrong, go and go and hurt those profit making ventures. Um, rather and especially than... if they're producing propaganda, you mm. know, like lamb ads and you know all this kind of stuff. Where they that we need to hit the t- where they're getting to people, where they're actually on the mainstream. TV. I, I don't. I don't watch television, but someone told me there's these lamb ads that are out, and um, you know that's something that you could, you could potentially target. Is like you know the companies that are producing propaganda that is is making people think that they need to eat meat and they need to have milk and they need to have eggs. Mm. Yeah, certainly, certainly um, interesting to think about. Uh, so, how do you think that the animal and human justice movement could work together better? So, we've talked about oppression being. Um, but it being the same thing, no matter where we're where we're putting our efforts, we're all fighting oppression. How how can we work with the human rights movement? I mean, like I said before about um, you know the lead beater possum, like that was just one example. Um, you can find campaigns that are, that intersect um, and 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 build connections there. So look at at the common causes that we have, mm. and 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 try to kind of work together to to share skills and, um, you know, strengthen the connection. Because, you know, as, as you and I know, we've worked together on a number of things and um, it's those connections that, that you have with different people and I have with different people in different movements that have enabled us to do an action that has nothing to do with, you know, the thing that the other person has, has gained their skills from. So, for example, you know, we've used people's skills from the environment movement to do... Uh, refugee action. Mm, you know, yeah. we've used each other's, you know, resources and, and I think that's really, really important is building those connections between activists from different movements um, to then find common causes that we can work on together. And I think, like, we're looking at a long game here and I think as long as we think of things as a short game, 
then you maybe can't see the benefit of it. But if, if you have a long game approach, you can see that over time, you know, I know that even just with people in my own life. When I first became vegan, people used to criticize me and ridicule me all the time. Mm. Now, nobody would dare to do that to me now because I'm confident and I'm strong and I know what I'm talking about. Yep. And I think that people, people know that. And so I don't get people saying that. They might say a joke here and there, you know, and I just, you know, give them a stare, <laughs> a death stare. But, you know, people don't, um, don't criticize me anymore because it's, it's something that I'm serious about. And I think that if you can apply that same approach to activism, if we're serious about working together, if we're serious about finding common causes and we're serious about, can, you know, finding those connections, then, you know, animal rights activists can be taken seriously in, in the social justice space. And therefore over time those connections can build and grow and, and hopefully we can make change within that space in terms of educating other activists yep. about animal rights, you know, um, and because I think that it's, it's a long game approach. Yep. On, on, that, on that point, um, just quickly, uh, I'll have to wrap up in a second, but I, I've had the experience of being the lone vegan in a room of environmental activists and um, and trying to put out a put out a voice or have a voice for the animals and sort of not getting a much much bite. What's your your experience been with that and how do you deal with it? Because from my experience, I've done that and I'd, I I'd have conversations individually with people. I wouldn't be really um, pushy as a in, within a group, but through that, I've seen people change their attitudes towards animals. Um, yeah. Have you had that experience? What's your experience being a lone voice, if you have been a lone voice in a in another movement speaking for animals? Yeah, I have. I have. And I think, again, I apply that long game approach. So I'm, I'm sort of like, okay, so in this situation, we probably need like five more vegans. You yeah. know? So I think it's about upskilling vegans to become activists, people who want to be activists, to then have a presence in those spaces so that, that you're not the lone voice. I don't yeah. think it's, you know, really... Yeah going to work well to be the lone voice all the time. So I think, you know, that's something that perhaps we could get better at is 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 not just focusing on, you know, vegan events and vegan rallies and, you know, actually joining group other groups, you know, in force and, you know, having four or five people go together and, you know, attend a meeting for another movement would you know, your voices would be stronger. And I think that's that's what I mean about the long game. Like you have to be able to see not going to happen next week you know it may take a year before you know people are you know in other movements and have you know understanding of that movement and then can voice their opinions and voice their perspectives about how you know they could be more intersectional and yep. and include vegan and animal rights um in their movement so i think it's it's going to take time and i think it, it's some strategy around that would be be really good and you know you and i are organizing something coming up which i'm sure you'll announce on your show um, that we could potentially discuss that kind of strategy in that event. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you. Very, we're going to have to wrap up there, but yeah, I will announce that uh, probably next week. But thank you very much, Tully, for joining us and having a great discussion about this. Um, yeah, Thanks, it was Adam. great having you on. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And just before we wrap up, I've got one community announcement. So last couple of times I've been on and been speaking about uh, climate change and particularly um, emergency response to climate change. And a council, local council in Melbourne called Darabin Council has declared a climate emergency and um, released its first draft plan of the climate emergency plan. 
and they had nine key topics that they're focusing on for this plan. Unfortunately, diet um, and hence animal agriculture has not been featured as one of the nine top priorities. This is despite uh, climate activists, not even not even animal rights activists, climate activists saying that food and diet should be in there, Ag- animal agriculture should be in these top priorities. Um, so Darabin Council and others are campaigning to have similar emergency response plans adopted by councils all around Australia and the Darabin Climate Emergency Plan will likely serve as a template for all other councils that adopt a climate emergency response. So if if diet fails to be included in this final version of the Darabin Plan, it means that we'll most likely have to battle every single council to try and put it in um, down the track. And it would just, it would be much easier if we win this battle right now. So um, given that diet is arguably the first step that anyone should take in their response to climate change, it is um, arguably the easiest step to take. It means changing um, what you buy at the supermarket tomorrow. And it's a really powerful response, individual response to global warming. It should should be in this climate emergency plan that the Darabin Council have developed. So you can see this draft plan um, on their website, and I'll link that in the Facebook post that I put up. But the website's at www.yoursaydarabin, and that's D-A-R-E-B-I-N.com.au forward slash climate action. And there they've got, a, um, they've got some surveys to fill out where people can, talk, can put forward how important they think different things are. And I think it would be really important as an animal rights community, vegan community, that we put forward that food and animal agriculture must be part of their top nine priorities um, in response to climate change. And that's that's something I'd love to see people take up in the vegan movement, especially in Melbourne. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be in Melbourne. Um, just put it forward no matter where you are. The more voices that put this forward, um, the better. So... I'm just going to finish up there. So thank you for listening and thanks to Sally for, um, for joining us today. It was great to have Sally on. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.